Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's virtual meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. We also welcome our listening and internet audiences and invite everyone to visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org. Today's program and the club's new virtual efforts are generously supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example and support the club during these uncertain times. I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council, and I'll be moderator for today's program called The Importance of Interfaith Understanding. Allow me now to offer a brief overview of today's subject. As the Executive Director of an organization whose mission is to bring people of different faiths together to celebrate our rich, diverse spiritual and religious traditions, build understanding, and serve our community, I've observed that the importance of interfaith understanding is at no time more significant than in times of crises. We seem to naturally come together and desire to build interfaith understanding at times of anti-Semitic attacks, Islamophobic attacks, terrorist attacks on houses of worship, attacks on human and civil rights, to name a few. Today, we find ourselves in the midst of a very different kind of attack, an unprecedented public health crisis. From the outset, we've heard scapegoating rhetoric from the highest echelons against Asian people as a way of placing blame for the pandemic. And at the same time, interestingly, when first called upon to shelter in place 10 weeks ago, the three major Abrahamic faiths were preparing to enter into their holiest of seasons. For the Jews, it was Passover with the message of liberation over oppression. For the Christians, it was Easter, the triumph of life over suffering and death. And for our Muslim sisters and brothers who were preparing for a month long of ascetic practices to better come into relationship with their creator, the planet, one another, and themselves to become better people. This was a time of, of great introspection. It is my hope that as we discuss the importance of interfaith understanding, that today we do so through the lens of the present coronavirus and how interfaith understanding can help us emerge from this season of physical, economic, and spiritual struggle more enlightened sisters and brothers of faith. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our distinguished panel. Allow me to begin with Majabin Dalla. Majabin is a religious motivational speaker and humanitarian with a master's degree in Islamic studies. Presently, she is pursuing a doctorate in Islamic studies at the Graduate Theological Union. Majabin, would you please begin our program with your remarks? Hello, everyone, and thank you, Michael, for that generous introduction. Um, I thank God for giving me this opportunity to share this esteemed panel with everyone and to be able to serve all those who have joined in and are listening in live. Uh, for my opening remarks, I would uh, begin with a greeting of peace to everyone, salam to whoever is joining us. And I'd like us to think about interreligiosity and about this interfaith 
communication that we are aiming to bring into this world. Uh, I'd like to think about it from how we arrive at this place where we dialogically engage with one another, how we proceed in that location, and what we take away from there as we move away from an enriched dialogue. I think it's so important to be mindful that when we arrive into an interreligious engagement, that we have to be cognizant that there are some traditions that are minority traditions, and they somehow feel an extra burden of having to explain themselves. So the premise with which we arrive into a dialogue is so very important and as important as to the different subjects that we're going to speak about. For the longest time, I think the premise with which we used to engage in dialogue with one another was either due to colonization, you know, you want to learn about the other so that you can subdue the other. You have a history of learning about the other just because you're afraid of the other, and you just want to come out there and say, oh, you're not as scary as I thought you were. Nice to meet you. All those might be the crises, resolutions that we might have at this point, but I think the beautiful way to arrive at an interreligious or an interfaith dialogue is perhaps what is inspired, at least for me, from the Quran, which is the sacred text of the Muslims. And, and that talks about engaging with the other at a human level, not at a religious level, not at a cultural level, not at a gendered level, but as another human being. And the famous verse of the Quran, which is 4913, which says, uh, you know, Inna wa wa We created you in male and female, and we distributed you in different tribes and nations. So that you may get to know one another and learn from one another. This in no way is an indication of supremacy. The one who is virtuous in the eyes of God is the one who is God wary and who is responsible as a human being. So I, I think that that sets a premise of how you arrive at it. You arrive at it wanting to know the human other and not the religious other or the cultural other. And once you arrive there, you engage with different modalities. And, and I'm so blessed to be at the GTU where we have uh, this interreligious environment where we can study about different faith religions based on texts, contexts spirituality, pilgrimage. There is so much that we share with one another as human beings. And, and because I'm in the sacred text department, I think our texts and the multiplicity in which people understand and render those texts and actually emulate those texts is, is provides us with a plethora of opportunities to engage with. We also come about and engage with social concerns. We look at uh, the, the coronavirus, for example, you know, the pandemic that, we're in, that we were in, we approached it from a moral mandate point of view. From each of our traditions, we had a moral mandate to seek out the other and to reach out to the other. And I think over this pandemic, we were able to share smiles, we were able to share stories, we were able to share support for one another, even though we were sheltered in 
place. And I think the, the final point that I'd like to make, at least for my opening remarks, is how we move forward from there. So when we come in, we come in realizing that sometimes this is an extra burden for those who are minority traditions. When we're in there, we're actually engaging with text, with context, with social concerns, with issues around gender, with issues around poverty, refugees. And when we move away from there, I think it is so important to realize that we have only engaged with one rendition or one part of a diverse tradition. So what I might have engaged with is perhaps one of the several intersections in which in which a religious tra tradition manifests itself. So if I speak here today, I'm only a part of a multiplicity of ways in which Muslims express their faith and a diverse understanding of different intersectionalities of geographic location, of language, of culture. And that is where I speak from. So when I walk away, I know that I'm not really speaking for, I've, I've gotten to know an entire tradition. No, it's just that one part. And Islam, just like any other tradition, is not uh, a monolith. It has several and diverse ways in which people you know, render their faith and express their spirituality. So I think uh, just to wrap that all up, how we arrive, what we engage with, and how we leave is very important to a successful and dialogical engagement in interreligious faith. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Majabin. We look forward to asking you some questions in a few minutes. Uh, now I'd like to introduce the Right Reverend William Swing, the former Episcopal Bishop of California and the founding trustee and president of the United Religions Initiative. My dear friend, Bishop Swing, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you, Michael. Um, wonderful to be with Majadeen and Sam today. Uh, they come from the GTU, the Graduate Theological a union over in Berkeley. Over 40 years ago, uh, various denominations decided, instead of just studying together, why don't we put our libraries together? Uh, why don't we have classes so that uh, people from one religion or one denomination can get to know other people and study other traditions? Um, this is such a gem uh, in the Bay Area. It's one of the largest interfaith libraries in the world, by the way. Uh, but uh, Sam teaches there, and uh, Maja Bean is uh, getting a PhD there, uh, inshallah. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, this is not the way it is all over the world. There are places in the world where uh, there are schools that teach people of one religion to hate the people of another religion. And there's a lot of money behind those schools. They hundreds of millions of dollars. They send people all over the place to build schools to teach children to hate people of other religions. But that's not just in schools. Uh, that, that's in little groups where in Charlottesville, Virginia, people can go down the street saying the Jews will not replace us. Or uh, uh, in... Uh, it, evidently, Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. It, uh, I've seen statistics on that. Muslims are persecuted. There are, there are schools of thought and there are centers of thought that are churning out uh, hatred. Uh, 
interfaith hatred every day. There've got to be uh, people on the other side who are putting up uh, the opposite, that we can move farther as a civilization if the religions can learn to live together, study together, um, and love each other and work together for the civic good. And if they do that, you can build a greater civilization than if you start killing everybody from other other religions. Uh, and therefore, I just, if I had a hat on, I'd take it off to the GTU and to, uh, to the people I'm on the panel with today. The second thing is um, I represent uh, the United Religions Initiative. And uh, by the way, uh, we are www.uri.org. Uh, and if you look that up, right up at the very top, it says uh, interfaith responses to the coronavirus. And if you hit that, then comes down a whole wrath of things about uh, these are the seminars, these are the actions, these are uh, the people you can get in touch with, these are and all over the world today, uh, uh, people of all kinds of faiths are getting together to serve their communities in the midst of uh, enormous famine, uh, enormous hunger. Uh, it, it's not just uh, uh, I, you know, somebody hating another religion. It's a matter of how can we eat? I saw one little story where uh, these people were standing in line for food, and they said, are you... Um, of this religion or are you from that religion? They said, we're from this religion. They said, you don't get food. This one gets food. Uh, so it gets, it gets very practical. Um, our United Religions Initiative, um, I went around the world to talk to the Pope and the Dalai Lama and Grand Muftis and uh, Sheikh of Al-Azhar and uh, Buddhist, one uh, Buddhist uh, uh, leaders and uh, uh, chief rabbi and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I learned that uh, much easier to work not with the people at the top of religion because they don't have much uh, uh, ability to, to stretch <clears throat> beyond their own tradition. But grassroots people have a chance to move out into the community and get together uh, without worrying about too much about doctrine uh, or uh, discipline. Um, they can they can find a, a a need in a community and get together from all the different religions and indigenous traditions and uh, uh, ethical or spiritual perspectives, and they can form coalitions, cooperation circles to address the the needs. So we um, we got into that uh, 20 years ago. We're now going to be 21 uh, 20 years old on August on uh, June the uh, 26th. Uh, we've gone through our teenage years now. Uh, we're young adults. And um, we're in 108 countries of the world. We've got uh, well over a thousand cooperation circles. We've got well over a million people. And uh, uh, we, don't, we don't have a campus. We don't have a building. Uh, we don't have overhead. Uh, we only have 36 employees all over the world. And everybody else is a volunteer. There, there's a big heart in the world among people of 
not only Jewish, Muslim, Christian, but uh, Buddhists and uh, Hindus and indigenous tribes. There's a big heart that if, if we could tap into that resource, we could change the world. So uh, that's what we're doing. And uh, so number one, I'm really pleased to be on with these two people from the GTU. Uh, that's, that's something I greatly look up to. And number two, I represent URI and glad to be here today, Michael, my dear friend. Bishop Swing, I would be remiss after listening to you if I didn't make two confessions. <clears throat> One is that the San Francisco Interfaith Council is a cooperation circle of the United Religions Initiative, and we are proud of that. And the other to Sam and Majabin is, uh, in a different iteration in life, I served as the interim director of the Patriarch Athenagoras Orthodox Institute at the GTU. And, and served on their board. And it was very, very rewarding. And I know the amazing work that you all are doing. So thank you. And thank you, Bishop Swing, for your leadership. Um, <clears throat> our next panelist is Sam Baron Chonkoff, who earned his PhD in the history of Judaism at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. He's an assistant professor of Jewish studies at the Graduate Theological Union at Berkeley. And it gives me great pleasure to present Sam. Thank you so much, Michael, and thank you to Bishop Swing and to Majabin Dalla. This is um, already a beautiful conversation that's happening right now, and um, I might just throw another log on the fire um, to stoke our discussion um, as we move forward. This is such an important conversation to have at all times, and um, particularly during times of strife, when, when um, different groups of all kinds, including religions, of course, have a very wily tendency to pit themselves against each other in ways that Bishop Swing was um, alluding to earlier. And we are in such a time in a variety of ways, um, most acutely, most presently, the pandemic, but all the other, all the other divisions remain. Um, and in this context especially, I think we can all, I hope we can all agree, um, I'm including the listeners here, that... Um, that it is counterproductive, to say the least, to take a position of my religion is beautiful, your religion is ugly, my religion is morally good, your religion is morally corrupt. Um, but I would like to suggest that it's also insufficient. It's inadequate to simply take a position of my religion is beautiful and your religion is beautiful. My religion is morally good and your religion is morally good. Um, I, I see this as a really strong, understandable, in many ways, tendency in interreligious relations and conversations. I think a really common example when this comes up is when we witness um, episodes of violence or bigotry in the name of a particular religious tradition. And there's a real sort of reflex that I think we have to come together and to say, those people are misunderstanding, they are perverting this tradition whose essence is one of love, of one of humanism, of one of justice, and so on. And that is an important message. And there's often truth in that, of course. Um, but it is also true that each of us comes from a tradition that is complicated. 
Um, we each come from, and, and not only the Abrahamic religions that we have in this conversation here, but every, every tradition um, has a complex history um, and has its shadows. And I would like to suggest that actually here too is really important common ground for us to meet each other around. Um, when we sugarcoat or oversimplify our traditions and those of our friends, um, we are missing a really important opportunity to, for a robust interreligious encounter and also a, an opportunity to engage in really important work of solidarity to heal this fragmented and wounded world that we're living in. Um, and I'd like to suggest also that actually maybe counterintuitively in some ways, when we sugarcoat and oversimplify our traditions, um, we're actually fanning the flames of interreligious tension in some ways. Um, and I hope that'll become more clear just in the couple comments that I wanna, that I wanna bring to light here. Um, and this is not just a matter of intellectual honesty or historical accuracy, although it's also, of course, that. What I want us to appreciate is ways that this is actually an important um, dimension of love. Love for our traditions and, and, and love for each other. Um, I think it's especially illuminating to think of this in terms of interpersonal love, that when we really love another individual, of course, it's not just for their greatest strengths and their sort of peak moments, but to really love is to also look upon and be in relation to their vulnerabilities, their mistakes, their areas for growth. Um, there's a lot of talk about what it means to love a country these days. Um, a lot of people's accusing, um, accusing folks of, for example, not loving America, where, where there's a sort of sham picture of love that is about just waving a flag, standing for a national anthem, um, uh, drawing attention to exceptional qualities of our country, without also looking upon the very complicated histories and shadows of this country. Um, as if to say that to talk about histories of massacres of indigenous people, histories of slavery and ongoing legacies of racism is somehow a failure to love. Um, I think that is a dangerous perspective to take and it applies also to what it means, I'd like to say, to love our own religions and to love the traditions of other people around us. Um, it's not just to cherry pick the verses that resonate with our contemporary values. It's not just to highlight the golden ages. Um, it's also to look upon the facts that our traditions invariably have teachings that are hurtful, offensive. Um, we've all gone through um, periods in, our in the history of our traditions of inflicting physical violence and spiritual violence. Um, and to look upon all of this uh, is truly to be able to bring a robust, deep love to the traditions. Um, in the Torah, in the, the Hebrew Bible, um, 
in Deuteronomy 6.5, we have a line that you shall love God with all of your heart. And there's a, uh, there's a midrashic teaching on this of what is this kind of love that we're talking about with all of your heart. And the word for heart in Hebrew is lev. And as you heard, the word for your heart here is levavcha. There's an extra v, there's an extra letter bet in here. And so the ancient Midrash asked the question of what's up with that? <laughs> and the suggestion is that this is telling us to love with both of your inclinations, with your good inclination and your so-called evil inclination. And the text goes on to wonder, what does it mean to love with both with, with, that, with that shadow side, with that yetzer hara. And the answer is, that your heart is not divided in relation to the divine. And I would add in relation to one another and our traditions. So this is a kind of love that looks upon the wholeness with a full open heart. And um, I might just quote um, another uh, Jewish physician of the soul by the name of Sigmund Freud, who drew our attention to ways in which um, when we deny or suppress things that we know to be true, that is actually far more dangerous and exerts far greater control over us than when we let those things into our conscious awareness and actually externalize them, speak about them, not act upon them. And I want to be clear about that. Um, but to be aware of them and to be open with them. And so in our interfaith understanding, our interreligious relations, I think that it is actually um, a matter of not just intellectual honesty, but a matter of wholehearted, open-eyed love to bring to one another, um, to actually engage with our traditions um, and with each other's traditions in their wholeness, in a spirit of asking the questions of ourselves and one another, how can we grow? Thank you. Thank you, Sam. And uh, now it's time for our question and answer period. I think I'd like to pick up on some of the the themes that you raised, Sam, as well as Majabin and uh, Bishop Swing. Uh, the first question I'd like to put to Sam and Majabin in particular, I, I, I started this uh, uh, overview of the subject today and mentioned that interfaith understanding is heightened, the interest at least, is heightened during times of crises. And, and I talked a little bit about sinophobia, the uh, hatred of Asian people that has uh, been the scapegoating and the, and, and the blame laying at, at our Asian sisters and brothers. I'm wondering in your own uh, cultures and traditions, if you have seen a spike in Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and what you would attribute that to. Uh, why don't we start with Majabin? Yeah, uh, that is that is a very important point that you bring up, uh, Michael. Uh, it seems the whenever there is a crisis in the world, it it will bring out uh, the essential character. It seems uh, steering away from essentialism chat, but uh, 
it brings out what we're made up of. So if there is goodness in someone's heart, you know, they, they just go deep down and bring that goodness out. And it's the crisis that reveals the goodness in people. And sometimes even though we would not, you know, want to admit it or would not want to acknowledge it, sometimes it even brings out the very dubious uh, from among ourselves. So uh, like every other tradition, I think we've also seen uh, what you say of or what you speak of with the Asian population here in the United States, there were countries in the sub, uh, subcontinent in, in India, you found that uh, the Muslims were targeted uh, with the same kind of rhetoric and the same kind of hatred that we saw against the Asians here in America. Uh, there is no denying that. And, and it, it, it did cause uh, a very real impact on people's lives, on their economy, on how they associated with their neighbors and, and with the larger public. But I think deep down, uh, we should also acknowledge the good work that came out of it. So there was there was an entire community this earlier uh, last month in the month of Ramadan, I was invited by the World Federation of Muslim Organizations to, to do a talk on philanthropy and how all Muslims all over the world united to come to the rescue of those who were being marginalized and those who were being fired from their jobs just because they were uh, or you know associated with a certain religious tradition. So at one side, when you do see this coming out, on the other side, you see that the goodness in the people, they're reaching out and they're, they're united in solidarity and reaching out to those people who have been mistreated this way. So that is true. And we see, this is what I've seen at least in, in, in the Muslims. And, and here, I think even in the San Francisco area, you found the African Muslims who are coming out and they're concerned about safety. And they're talking about how even when we reopen the religious you know, churches and organizations, that we are giving safety their priority. So I think it brings out a bit of both in people. Thank you for raising that last issue. That's another question that one of our uh, audience members has asked. So we will address that as well. Sam, would you chime in? Yeah, I'll just say briefly, um, absolutely, anti-Semitism has been on the rise lately, and uh, that has been bound up with, as, as you emphasized importantly, Michael, um, and, and also Majavin, that's been bound up with uh, increases in discrimination um, and marginalization of, of, of all minorities. Um, there's a very long tradition of blaming plagues on Jews. Um, and we've seen that um, come up a bit lately. Um, and I think even more so, there's a, a something that, that David Nirenberg has brought out in his recent book, Anti-Judaism. There's a, there's a long tradition of um, whenever there is a time of, uh, of, of great um, ideological uh, shifting and, and, and envisioning of new ways, new, um, new philosophies, new economics, new politics, um, there is a great um, tendency to, uh, to point to some foil, right? To some other, to some shadow as the antithesis of whatever uh, it is that you're um, envisioning. And um, there's been a long history of Jews, of course, uh, being put into that hot seat of being um, the other against which um, these new uh, visions are articulated. Um, and today, it's not just Jews, of course. Um, there were ways, this is this is something. This is we we see um, all all groups being used in this way. Um, but I think we're living in a time of great vision. <laughs> 
great transformation and upheaval in some ways that are very exciting, actually. Um, but I think that that's also part of this rise of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, um, xenophobia more generally um, that, that, gets, uh, that gets bound up with this. And I should say that that happens uh, not to do the both sides thing, <laughs> but, but we, we, see that, we see that all across cultural spectrums. Thank you. Um, Bishop Swing, uh, feel free to chime in and, and give your thoughts on this, but I have another question for you in, in particular. I, I know you're a little bit of a philologist, um, and the, the theme today is the importance of interfaith understanding. Uh, in my mind, importance has always had to do with impact. Um, could you give some examples how interfaith understanding could lead or has led to importance? Yeah, the word understanding here, um, uh, it connotes two, two ways of understanding. One is in the head. Uh, do I, how do I learn about Judaism? Uh, how do I learn about Islam? Uh, what is your theology? What are, what are your uh, rituals, uh, etc.? Uh, so I, I learn. What's your language? What, what's your holy scripture? Um, and then another way of learning is uh, is just to know you as a as a Jew, uh, know you uh, as a Muslim. Uh, and we don't have to we don't have to know our sacred texts. We just need to know each other uh, to be citizens, to uh, share um, a common concern for the neighborhood or for the town we live in. Uh, I remember going to the Vatican in 1996 and uh, I was dealing with the Cardinal who was uh, the head of interreligious activities for the Roman Catholic Church. And we were talking about interfaith and he said, you know, we decided to take Islam seriously. Uh, 30 years ago, he said in, 1930, in 1996, so that's, we're talking now, 1996, he said 1966. So we got a whole lot of our young scholars to learn Arabic, uh, to learn uh, uh, Muslim scripture, to learn uh, the geography of Islam around the world. Uh, and he said, we have a cadre of people who really understand Islam. Uh, and I, I was so impressed by that, that, uh, that you would make an investment in understanding the other. Uh, but then after I thought about it, it's also, that's just a few people. There are billions and billions of people in the world and only a few people really understand, intellectually understand the language, the theology, the et cetera. So, so what's, what's available? What's available is to understand the other person. Uh, the other day I was talking to a, a guy, uh, Ambassador Thomas Graham, who has negotiated almost every United States uh, negotiation with Russia concerning nuclear weapons. And we've signed some pretty good things like the uh, NPT, uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty, which he was the head of, uh, the new START talks, et cetera, et cetera, which he's been involved in. Almost all that he said. You know, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have uh, gotten anything done on nuclear disarmament between Russia 
in America if it weren't for the human relationships that were built up between the Russian diplomats and our diplomats and their scientists and our scientists and their politicians and our politicians, they actually, we actually uh, became deep friends. And when we were negotiating, we were negotiating as one human being who really respected the other human being. Uh, so when I talk about uh, understanding, uh, it's not uh, interfaith understanding isn't just what you know, it's also <laughs> who you know. <laughs> it's it's who you respect and who respects you and what you, what could you build from that. So interfaith understanding for me, uh, it's a luxury to do it intellectually. It's necessary. It's important. But it, but for the masses of people in the world, the real issue is to know to know each other. And uh, uh, Major Beam said this earlier. It, it's to, it's to know each other as humans. That's it. Thank you, Bishop Swing. And I'm going to pick up because we are speaking with scholars. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to ask Maja Bean, uh, what are some of the ways in which interreligious education equips scholars and practitioners for dialogue and action and engagement? Yeah, thank you, uh, Michael, uh, for that question. This really is a very, um, I think it's a necessity at this this point where humanity has arrived here at this place to uh, to be ready to embrace diversity. You know, there is there is just no way that we can complain about it. There is just no way we can get around it. Diversity is here to stay, and and the sooner we embrace it, the the faster we will be able to achieve that common good that all of us are trying to arrive at you know, in our diversity as human beings. So uh, it, it is so important that we engage with one another, you know, as scholars, uh, as, as, as just human beings, citizens of a country, sharing the same concerns, sharing the same challenges. And, and then I think where I'm getting at with this is, uh, it's so important to know how we are interconnected in, in this pain that we all share. So, uh, I realized that we were going to we were going to have this event when all of us were going to be in a celebratory mode. Uh, all the three Abrahamic traditions were going to be in some form of form of a celebration or the other. And then coin the, the coin just flipped and we find ourselves in a suffering mode now. And we're all suffering together. And somehow this interreligiosity that that going down to the human uh, core of one another has connected us and interconnected us in in beautiful ways so i think uh, what this does for us as scholars is it equips us first by knowing that we're not just interreligious but we're also intersectional we, we all, we, we, when we're talking to one another, we're not just talking from that part of a different religion tradition or a tradition that is different from mine, but it's also a person in a different location than I am, in a different body than I am, with different accessibilities than I have, with different privileges than I have. So everything that we bring to the table comes from these different intersections different geographical locations, uh, different languages, different cultures. So I think you come into the study termed interreligious study, but you leave away from here equipped with a lot more 
to expand that conversation with. Now you can take it into a gender discourse. You can take it into uh, you know Middle East uh, relationships. You can take it into geographical. You can take it into calling for justice. And I think I really like this about. Uh, uh, you know, about it, this verse of the Quran, which says that God really doesn't like making noise, if, if you were to say so. God doesn't like it when you don't talk politely, except for the one who has been oppressed. You know, mm. The rules are relaxed for those who are oppressed. They can go out and they can make noise and it's, and it's totally fine for them to do so. So I think when you leave an interreligious dialogue, you, you come out with all these understandings and with all these you know, intricacies and, and different ways in which we connect and we express ourselves. So at least for me, I find that a very uh, beneficial tool in my toolbox when I engage with someone else on a different level and, and you know, dialogically and, and collaborate with them. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And Sam, a companion uh, question here. Uh, the GTU is known for its interreligious approach to the study of religions. As a professor there, and from your vantage point at the GTU's Center for Jewish Studies, what does this look like in practice? Are, are there any aspects of the GTU's approach that might be more instructive for interfaith dynamics in the broader world? Hmm. Thanks for the question. Um, I just want to say, first of all, I'm obsessed with everything much of being just said. <laughs> it resonates really profoundly. Um, and I'll just pick up on this point. I just want to highlight this point that she said, which is really a part of my answer, that this notion that we come to think about and study interreligiosity and we, we nuance that and texture that in ways that let us see that what we're studying is also intersectionality and that it's not simply a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim walk into a bar as if these are, you know, three types of human beings in the world, um, but that actually we are all complex constellations of identities and positionalities. And um, I will highlight that as something that I think the GTU is doing increasingly well, is my, is my impression, um, and, and, a, and a direction that I think is really important for interreligious studies and religious studies. Um, but yeah, and Bishop Swing, and, and I appreciated your remarks in the beginning where you, you noted the, the institutional history of, of the GTU as being this, this union of schools. And I think that this, that you of the GTU says a lot. Um, we are not striving to be a kind of melting pot of religious and spiritual people. We really are a community of communities. We are a union of centers and schools. Um, and what that means to me is that, well, we sort of maintain a bifocal vision in some way. Um, we keep in mind um, the world at large and what it means to live in a globalized, diverse world of people. Um, and we also keep in mind the specificities and particularities of traditions in their, in their historical context, in their textual hermeneutical dynamics. Um, so a, a good example of this, we're launching a really exciting, um, in many ways groundbreaking interreligious chaplaincy program this fall, um, directed by Kamal Abu Shansia. Um, and the way that this is working is that this is training people to do spiritual care with diverse populations in all kinds of contexts um, and settings. 
But also part of the training is to also complete a master's in one of the particular centers of the GTU. Um, so to say that we want to train you in these sort of broad humanist, universalist traditions of spiritual care, but we also value being rooted in a particular tradition and speaking from a place of being informed. I think that that, um, that bifocal vision of keeping the world at large in mind while also being sensitive and attuned to the particularities of different traditions and different communities is something that the GTU does remarkably well and that um, I think does shed light on, on broader possibilities in the world. Thank you. Um, you know, when, when we're at the club and I'm moderating, I'm used to Celia bringing up these little cards with questions. If you've heard a little ping uh, over and over and over, it's because Mark Kirchner from the club is sending me your questions and so many of them are so wonderful. I don't think we're going to get to all of them, but I would like to, uh, to uh, post a couple that I think would be instructive here. Um, this one is for Bishop Swing, and I guess it's asking for some clarity from your opening remarks. Um, if those at the top of religious hierarchy are constrained, say, by dogma and doctrine, how is it possible that followers should lead without such constraint? Is it a shared leadership? Um, if we take away the shared leadership, I, which I, I don't follow, um, um, let's see, the people at the top, uh, I, I remember being in, uh, Jerusalem with the Dalai Lama and he and I went by to see a, uh, a patriarch. And the patriarch was seated high on a throne, and the Dalai Lama and I were seated on the floor. <laughs> and we were, we were, I was telling him about the United Religions Initiative, and et cetera, et cetera. I said, why don't, you, why don't you join us, and let's do something about interfaith. And he said, he said I, I can't, I'd love to do that, but I can't do it. And he said, I'm a prisoner in, on my own throne. Uh, I, can't, I can't leave here. I, uh, I'm up here, uh, which said the world to me. Uh, he was a wonderful man and very spiritual, and he got it in terms of a bigger vision that it, the economy of God involving many more than one one faith perspective. But um, uh, when you're dealing with religious leaders, usually there's a pyramid and they're at the top of the pyramid and their, their number one obligation is to defend the faith of the people underneath them. And if they act like that they're just one of many faiths, it kind of means maybe one faith has is, is kind of as good of, as another, then that destroys the pyramid. And so they don't have a lot of chance to get away from the pyramid. But the people at the bottom of the pyramid, they just live in towns and villages. Uh, if they want to build a well together with other people, they could just do it. Uh, so there's a, a great deal of um, flexibility at the bottom. There's very little flexibility at the top. And, and you see that in the cooperation circles? Yeah. Uh, very interestingly, we decided, okay, we're, we're just going to start a grassroots movement, et cetera. 
But as we, as we work around the world, we find that more and more religious leaders join cooperation circles. So that we have rabbis and imams and, and bishops and uh, et cetera, et cetera, in the cooperation circles. Uh, it's very interesting. You start at the bottom and all kinds of uh, people in the hierarchies begin to work with you. So that's great. I guess it's our human nature to be together. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this question is for Majabin. Um, you speak about approaching the other as a human being first. But what can be done by Muslims in the United States to help the public understand Islam as you express it? Yeah, thank you for that question, Michael. Um, and, and it's a very genuine and beautiful concern uh, that, that, that has been shared through this question. But again, I'd like to go back to the, um, to the initial remarks that I made. Uh, I think it's key, it's really key to understand that when we are inviting the Muslim folk in, in our country to be able to engage with others on a human level, that we're also ready to engage with them at that level. So uh, I sometimes find it very burdensome if there is just one Muslim individual who is called upon to explain everything that is Islam. And, and I find that that is just so unfair because each one of us is so different and we're at different locations and we're at different places in our own spirituality and humanity. So um, I, I, I would just I would suggest that we are also open to learning at our own pace uh, from our own points of view and perspective. And, and I think, uh, you know, this country and every other country and every other community of human beings is going to find Muslims just as welcoming as any other religious tradition to sit down and talk to another person as a friend or as, as, as a community member. I think it becomes a little problematic, and, and that's why I said it's important to recognize that sometimes uh, minority traditions feel they have this double burden. I remember once at the Asian Art Museum when I was speaking to a group of K-12 to teachers, and, and many of those teachers would just not talk about Islam as, as world religions because they thought it was very intimidating to talk about Islam. And instead of that, what was happening was that was a 14-year-old Muslim kid in high school was tapped on on the shoulder to explain why there was a certain event happening in the world uh, pertaining to Muslims. So I, I, I think what I meant that when we engage with another at a human level is that we realize that that one person can really might not even want to. It's not whether they're equipped, equipped or not, might just not want to engage at that level with someone else. So instead of saying, can you explain why this happened to me? You could come up and give a human comment and say, I hope you're okay in the middle of all of this. What can I do to help you get through this? So I think that is what I meant about a human engagement rather than just you know, take someone who is visibly Muslim and, and you know, just start up a conversation which they might not want to engage with. You know, when you first mentioned this, it really, it hit home because a lot of our work is service oriented. And um, I remember a long, long time ago, somebody said to me, somebody, yeah, people might not pick up a book on the Greek Orthodox faith and all they're gonna ever know about your, your faith is what they see in you. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so you are a living and walking uh, book, if you will, to some extent. 
on, on what your faith teaches. Um, Sam, just a question here. In as much as Jews have been a minority population wherever they've lived almost all their entire history, until just the past 70 years or so, for Jews living in the state of Israel, how do you think this has shaped Jewish perspectives on interfaith relations? Mm. Yeah, um, profoundly. I, and this, this, again, connects to some of the wise words that Bean was just saying. But I think something, and, and also this, this image, Michael, that you concluded with of, um, of each of us being a sort of book that gets studied um, as, as kind of representative um, in some cases of an entire tradition in ways that that can be a beautiful opportunity, but also ways to use Masha Bean's term, ways that that can be burdensome. And I think that with the ways in which that is burdensome um, are, more, are often more clear to people who are having minority experiences. Um, something that in any kind of conversation we at the most micro or, or the most macro level that we have to be sensitive to is power, power dynamics. Um, Majabin spoke earlier about, about what it is to have a dialogue. Um, and I think that we can, um, we can contrast dialogue with disputation, right? A lot of the so-called interreligious dialogues of the past when we look back to the sort of great, you know, interreligious dialogues happening in the medieval world, say, um, these were almost exclusively scenarios where there was a particular um, authority, be it a king, an emperor, um, arranging for these kinds of uh, dialogues, either directly or indirectly, but there being um, a, so, a, a conversation between a, religion, a religious group that is hegemonic, that is dominant, that is in power, that is stable and secure and not having tremendous reason to fear for its existence or, its, or others' perceptions of them, and other religious groups that have minority experiences in that place. And Jews, um, as, as the question indicated, uh, have um, Judaism arose in exile, right? Judea Judaism, as we know it, rabbinic Judaism arose after the destruction of the temple in the year 70. Um, and, and almost in the, 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 the formative centuries, millennia, of this tradition um, was, was diaspora experience. So I think that there's ways that um, Jews, the interreligious conversations have not always been safe for Jews. Um, if that conversation doesn't go well, if Judaism doesn't end up looking rational or, or, um, or theologically or philosophically sound at the end of that conversation, there are real material risks there. Um, I think something also that from the Jewish perspective and really any minority religious perspective on interfaith relations and conversations to be aware of is ways that this is always happening in a particular language. And that language is, is, is inevitably shaped more by the majority hegemonic religions than by the minority traditions that are participating in that conversation. Um, and even in the most well-meaning cases, for example, the term interfaith, that strikes me as a quite Christian term, right? And as, as a Jew, I'm, you know, faith as doctrine or belief 
actually isn't isn't such a um, foundational part of what it is to be Jewish. So to define a religion as something that is a faith already um, kind of indicates a particular setting in which this conversation is taking place. I, for the record, feel very comfortable <laughs> in this conversation, and I'm grateful to be here and to be a part of this, and I find this to be fruitful. Um, but it's just a small, subtle example of something that can actually be far more insidious um, in, other, in other kinds of contexts. So um, I think that those are some ways that, that, um, that Jewish tradition has, has emerged and evolved around some of those particular um, conditions and situations uh, with regard to interfaith, interreligious uh, dialogue. Thank you. I mean, you've given us a lot of food for thought, and I'm going to be very careful how I use language uh, <laughs> moving forward. Uh, we, we're, we're coming to the end of the hour, but I feel compelled because we, we've received more than one question on this particular issue. And as the father of twins who are supposed to be graduating from high school, um, uh, next week, uh, this week, excuse me. Um, the question is how can we involve young people of different faiths in this context of the COVID-19 pandemic in growing in, uh, better relations of people of different religions and faiths? And I, I will put that out to all three of you. It's the last question. Well, I, I think that, uh, the, the human problem draws the young people. Uh, if you have uh, if you have uh, climate change, the young people don't come at it like this is a Jewish problem or a Muslim problem or a Christian problem. It's just a human problem, and the young people see it and they go to it, um, and therefore they find their community uh, in their action. I was just thinking earlier when I was listening that uh, Corona must be an inter interreligious virus. Uh, <laughs> it goes to all the religions, and it it creates a uh, a, a human response uh, that has to be global in order to do something about it. Anyway, I'll let other people speak. Thank, thank you, thank you, uh, Majabin. Yeah, I'm wondering if I could chime in. Thank you, uh, and congratulations, Michael, uh, for your... Uh, <laughs> your I'm so proud of them. <laughs> I think coming to that age group and the young people of today, there is so much that we inherit from our parents, and sometimes we also inherit their limitations. And I don't mean physical limitations or DNA and stuff like that. I also mean how we think inadvertently sometimes we pass on those limited ways in which we've shaped our intellectuality to our children when we sort of discipline them or tell them what they're supposed to ask and not ask. And, and this, I think when crisis hits humanity, this is God's way of emboldening new thoughts. So I think especially with that age group, when they're ready to question and they're ready to question their own traditions and say, why is it that in my tradition I am or am I, I am not able to associate with another member of a certain religious tradition at this level? I think that's a very bold question. And, and, and I think our young people 
can readily see this. They are not afraid of asking questions. They are not afraid of breaking laws that we thought that we just couldn't and we were bound by them. And, and I think this is the beauty with which I think the next generation can take this work of interconnectedness farther down. We all feel the same pain. We all bleed the same blood. We all bruise in the same manner. And I think this, uh, our young people relate to far easy, in, in an easier manner than I think people who are set in a tradition like perhaps, you know, we are, uh, or maybe I can just speak for myself. But I, I would like to welcome this. When my daughters question me about something that, you know, corners me, uh, I, I uh, feel good about it. I really feel good about it because that's a thought that never came to me. And they're asking me this question. And I think a pandemic like this has brought the young people together and they're looking for answers, perhaps at places that we were too scared to look for. And just to shout out to them to keep on doing that good work and connecting us in ways that we thought there were no bridges to connect. This will define their generation as say 9-11 defined ours. Um, uh, Sam, you're going to get the last word. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I've, I'll just start with gratitude, Ben. I'm just really, really enjoying listening to each of you and conversing with you. Yeah, I, I love. I, I, this is a great concluding question. Um, you know, something that a lot of religious traditions speak about, particularly the mystical dimensions of those traditions, is that moment when you realize that the world as we know it, right? The, the ways of the world that we were taught that everything that, that are the sort of laws of existence, that actually that is only the outer layer, right? That's the sort of crust of a much deeper, um, mysterious, unknown, um, dynamic truth and, and inner reality. Um, I think that we're seeing in this in this upcoming generation of young people um, an attunement to that in a very real social political sense. Um, there seems to there's straight. I, I have a lot of faith in this in this new generation. Um, there seems to be a really remarkably pervasive sense that. Um, the world as we know it doesn't have to be this way, that there actually can be, um, we can gain insight into um, dynamics of power and authority and all of the institutions that structure our existence and all of the different parties and canons and documents that tell us how things are and how they ought to be, that actually um, these are, uh, that it's possible to see through the veil <laughs> to use to use the language of many of our traditions. Um, and they're pairing that. A lot of young people are, I think, more so than when I was growing up, are pairing that with a real thirst for information. And, and that combination of both trying to see beyond the veil um, and narratives um, with a genuine thirst for information, for details, for um, counter histories, um, that is going to be very potent for the world at large. But also, that just opens up tremendous fertility and, and possibilities of renewal in the resources of our traditions. Um, as we've seen in, in the history of religion, some of the, the moments of flowering, of transformation, of new revelation 
um, in within traditions happens when people see something completely different in those in those foundational sources and um, you know not to glorify the young people too much but, uh, but I, I see a lot of promise I see I see I see a very exciting churning of, of commentators interpreters and practitioners of the future and my hope is that uh, we can have some intergenerational dialogue and learn from yeah. one um, we have exceeded the time, and my apologies to the many other questions that we couldn't address. We could be here all day, which uh, uh, time does not permit, but uh, the spirit does wish. Um, I, I want to say a very special thank you to our distinguished panelists, uh, Majabin uh, Dalla, Bishop w uh, William Swing, and Dr. Sam uh, Baron-Shankoff. Uh, I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council today's moderator for the program called The Importance of Interfaith Understanding. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 115 years of enlightened discussion is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.